You're listening to Nostalgia Club, the podcast where we look back on our favorite childhood stories and revisit them as adults. At least one of us hasn't read or watched these series, so we also get a first-timer's opinion. Spoiler alert, we will be discussing storylines and future events beyond the first books and episodes, so proceed with caution. So I'm just doing like a normal, regular intro, right? Yeah, just like a, hi, welcome back to the episode. And hi, then... welcome back to the episode. <laughs> uh, I'm Gino. Try it again. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> I think the episode's already begun. I think that, I, I don't know. Gather it... around the fire, children, and I will tell you a tale about... Deltor. Um, magic belt. <laughs> magic belt. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you a tale about magic belt. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a magic belt, just the magic, magic, belt. The magic belt. belt. Hello and welcome back. I'm Gino and I'm joined today by Michael and Victoria. And today we're going to be talking about Del Toro Quest, a children's fantasy book series by the Australian author Emily Rada or Rhoda Rada. You know what? Let's look this up. Emily, real I'm quick. so sorry. <laughs> She's listening to this and is like, they always get my name wrong. Thank you for your amazing books. Where would we be without you? Bookless, that's Bookless, for sure. Bookless, yeah. My name is Jennifer Rowe, but you might know me better as Emily Rodder. <gasps> well, she has a different name. That's not even her real oh, name. Oh, yeah. She has a, it's a pen name, a pseudonym based on her grandmother's name. Ooh. Anyway, hi. Welcome back. We're talking about Del Toro Quest. <laughs> you have to reintroduce the book. Oh, no. Yeah. Hi, welcome back. We're talking about... Hi. Hi. Well... <laughs> Hi. Hello there. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta fire me. It's okay. <sighs> Today we're talking about Del Toro Quest, a fantasy children's book series by Australian author Emily Rada. I thought it was a much older book series than it actually was. The first book was published actually in... 2000. I thought it was oh. much older than that. Michael and I have read this as kids. Michael probably much more than I did. My experience with those request was limited to what was on my second grade bookshelf in the classroom. <laughs> so did you not finish the whole series of Del Toro Quest? I can't remember. I had a very distinct visual memory of seeing the covers, being very intrigued by the covers of the books. I remember picking them up often and taking them with me often during our reading times in class. But I couldn't tell you the plots of the book, only the general vibes and, like, some of the monsters they face. Mm. But as I was reading this first book, it all came back to me. The artwork for this book series is very distinct, mm -hmm. incredible, very eye-catching to a young Gino's eyes. Just the, just the dragons and the giant bird monsters i don't know it was the mouse drawing for me the mouse drawing yeah the mouse drawing the one at the very beginning where he gets a note and it turns out like it was his best friend's drawing as a kid where he left clues for him to how to get back into the palace i think it was a bear it's supposed to be a bear oh no oh, oh no <laughs> no it's fine because it's a kid's drawing Wait, I thought it was a mouse. Well, there's a there's a rhyme with it, right? Yeah, it's like, but it and it's like a very a slanted rhyme. But I, I love it because it's the kind of oh, rhyme a kid okay. would write. Wait, I think I... Oh, it says scurry mouse. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but maybe it is supposed to be a bear. Hold on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna... Well, it says like move the bear. Yeah, it says wake the bear. Do not fear. Scurry mouse into your house. Lift the lid. Be glad you did. And it looks like a mouse. I think it's also because like the hill behind it makes it look like it has a tail. Okay. So my brain went and scurry, scurry mouse, mouse is underneath it, so it made me associate it as a mouse. I can see how it looks like a mouse. I think it looks like a, like a, like a rock. Anyway, Del Toro <laughs> Quest. It is a fantasy series about the belt of Del Toro and the land of Del Toro, which has been invaded and, and overtaken by this evil Shadow Lord. Well... At some point, because for the first half of the book, it's all set up. It's an interestingly paced book. Interestingly paced is a good way to put it. The pacing is extra interesting because as I was just Googling here, it looks like this this first run, this, this initial run of Del Toro Quest, it's like eight novels all released within two years. Whoa. Yeah, and it's partly understandable because this first book is only like... 66 pages of actual story material and then there's like some interesting lore material on the side but these are relatively quick books to read at least now when i was a kid this was basically like reading some expansive you know novel 
fantastical, magical adventure and you reach the end of a book and you're like, wow, what a full, complete journey that took me a while to read. <laughs> months, months and months, months to read. Months and months. Meanwhile, last night, I'm like on the couch, just like, all right, what do we got? Half this book left? You know, I'll just, I'll just punch <laughs> right through this. I mean, I remember watching a little featurette on YouTube and I think she said she did a lot of preparation work for the series, but I imagine she must have written a number of these out uh, before they started publishing them. In mm. fact, I think it's entirely possible that she might have written all of these and then handed them over to the publisher and they said, great, we will churn these out in a very quick period of time because kids will gobble these up. And I, I think I think publishers like to like to do that. I think you're right. It does feel like the beginning of a much larger book, mm-hmm. the first book does. It's also possible that she wrote it all intending it to all be one book and then when she brought it to the publisher they were like hey what do you think about releasing this like as a series that's possible yeah Yeah. i could certainly believe it it would just require a little bit of uh, trimming up some areas so you make room for specific what feel like endings and then Mm -hmm. and there you go uh but tell us victoria how'd you like well first first just so everyone including whoever's listening is clued in uh just in case tell us the plot of this first book of Del Toro quest called The Forests of Silence. Ooh, okay. So it starts off and you meet Jared, who his name is spelled J-A-R-R-E-D, and I always want to read it as Jard. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Jared. You know what's hilarious? What? When I was reading, I was like, I wonder if Victoria is going to want to read this. This name is Jard. <laughs> I don't know why. why. I I don't know why I thought that. I just thought to myself, like, because it's an actual word. So I read it and I was like, jarred. And (laughs) (laughs) anyway, so you meet Jared. He works at the palace in the land in the kingdom of Del Tora, and his best friend is the prince Endin. But today, unfortunately, is the funeral of Endin's father, the king. And also, it turns out recently, his mother, the queen, also passed away very shortly. And Endin uh, is still quite young. Like, I think he's probably a teenager still. Probably late teens, thereabout. And so he's quite young to be a king, but today is not only his father's funeral, but it's also therefore his coronation. They quickly establish Jared and Endon's relationship very well. They literally have a secret code that they write to each other in, which my friends and I growing up had secret codes that we wrote as well. And Jared basically says, hey, I'm his best friend in the whole world. Like, I know everything about him. Yeah, that's about it. (laughs) And then he goes to the coronation. And then this is the first time you see the faded belt of Del Tora, which After having talked to you guys about this before, like, we recorded the episode and read the books, I was like, ah, yes, it's the belt. (laughs) I know, I know this is very important. So what does the belt look like? It's just like a gold chain and then it has, like, what, seven jewels attached Uh, to it? Seven different uh, jewels. I forget the color of of it. I know the the first one. Yes. Isn't it gold? I think it's gold. It's, it's, It's described as almost very delicate. Yeah, like I was chain link. Yeah, it's like chain link. Like I'm imagining it's like gem and then like some chains and then another gem. Like I think almost like a decorative belt more ah, than like silver. Silver. Oh, it is silver. Okay. It has seven jewels and there's like all this history behind where these jewels came from. I guess it was like this is how they initially defeated the Shadow Lord was they collected these jewels from the seven lands. Yeah, I believe Jared, after Endin ascends the throne, the the king's advisor, Prandine? I always say Prandine. I pronounce it like Prandine. Prandine? (laughs) I don't know. The names in this series are very interestingly spelled. Yes. And then there's like Anna. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the, the king's advisor brings out the belt that Endin wears as part of the ceremony. Um, it flashes once because the belt recognizes the air of its maker, which I think is, it's Adin or Aiden or Adin. But the first person who, the person who forged the belt, the first king of Del Tora, who was a blacksmith, it recognizes his air. Its power is linked to the air of Adin. And then immediately the belt is put away and locked in a tower and kept 
safe. Um, and immediately you're getting shifty vibes from yeah. the it's classic evil king's advisor territory from mm-hmm. this guy who's described as basically like a big walking like predatory bird, <laughs> just like in physical appearance or whatever, just some kind of weird skeletal dude. And then Jared goes to the library because he gets curious and worried and he finds a book about the history of Del Tora and specifically the belt that had been uh, tucked away in the back. And it talks about, it, it kind of lore dumps you. Yeah, it literally is like, Jared learns about the history of Del Toro. So you're also going to learn about the history <laughs> of Del Toro. It literally bolds it and puts it in like bullet points. Um, yeah, it isn't even like, Jared read about the history and it. this is what happened. It's literally just like, there came a time when the enemy from the Shadowlands cast greedy eyes on Del Toro. Like it tells you word for word what this book says. It's great. So there's like seven tribes. Each of them had a, a powerful jewel that had some magical properties. When the Shadow Lord first came into the land of Del Tora was having a lot of success because all these tribes were divided. Adin fashioned a belt and convinced the tribes to each put their gems in this belt. And with the power of the tribes united in the form of this belt, the power of it repelled the Shadow Lord back to the Shadowlands north of Del Tora. And, uh, and ever since, uh, Adam's line has ruled over the land of Del Tora, but under the advice of various chief advisors who have clearly been uh, working in cahoots, for, <laughs> in yeah. cahoots with the Shadow Lord, more and more of that power has been stripped away in one form or another through various customs enforced in something called the rule. Uh, the king has been made more and more impotent in a way, or the queen, because there have been uh, sometimes kings, sometimes queens. I like that they established from the start that this is not like a patriarch. Yeah. It's just whoever's the firstborn, regardless of gender, gets to be the ruler. The yeah. belt's so. really important. We got to get someone with that belt. Like, yeah. whoever we got, just like, yeah. please. <laughs> it's good world building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are blood related to Adam, yeah. you're putting the belt on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then from there, Jared tries to go to Endin and tell him, like, no, you got to put the belt on. You got to wear it, like, more often than basically what you've been taught your whole life to do and Endin is like I don't know the rule says I'm only supposed to wear it this once and then it's locked away for safekeeping and Jared's like no that's what they want you to think but then Prandine shows up and basically uses that to turn Endin away from Jared and like break his trust in his best friend and Jared has this moment of realization that Prandine's just been waiting for this moment this whole time because now Endin is really in his full control. So Jared runs away from the palace, but he doesn't go that far. He goes right outside the palace. (laughs) But it turns out that this whole time that they've been looking out the palace windows, they've thought that the city on the outskirts of the palace has been flourishing and thriving and the people are happy. It turns out people are starving. They're dying. They're super duper poor. (laughs) And Jared is like, oh no, Endon doesn't know any of this. There's a mist. There's like a magical Yeah, there's like a magical mist that basically keeps everyone inside the palace unaware. And it's yeah. another part of the rule is that if you if you're royalty, if you're from one of the ro- uh, noble houses, you live within the confines of this palatial complex. Yeah. And it's always framed as like, oh, it's for your safety. But of course, it's really to so they the advisors can hide things from you. But Jared decides to stay nearby because he leaves a note for Endin with their secret code that if he ever needs him, Jared will be nearby. So he takes shelter with this blacksmith. And then seven years pass. Jared gets married. He's expecting a kid. And then the village is, or like the kingdom is attacked by the Shadow Lord. Yes, the the Akbaba. Yes. Basically large vulture-like Which beasts. I had a question. I was like, the vultures that work for the Shadow Lord, they're just basically the ring wraiths. Yeah, they are. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's great. There's a lot of that in fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but this is going to be heresy that I'm going to admit on a podcast, <laughs> but I haven't read The Lord of the Rings. <gasps> I know. It's a long book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, while while everyone was reading Lord of the Rings, I was reading uh, the Chronicles of Prydain, mm-hmm. mm. which came after Lord of the Rings and certainly bears plenty of similarities, but it touched my heart. That's something for a future episode, perhaps, because those books are very close to my heart. So, all right, on the next episode, we read Lord of the Rings. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta read fast. <laughs> Real page turner, that one. But yeah, so the Akbab are basically just vulture-like Nazgul. Yes. I was always disappointed as a kid because in some of the Del Toro books that they had in my classroom there were pictures of dragons on them 
But then whenever I read the books, I was described these birds and I was like, oh, dragons are so much cooler. <laughs> Why can't they be dragons? Why do they got to be birds? I hate <laughs> these birds. <laughs> Stupid birds. <laughs> Wait, are there ever dragons in the series? In a later series. Okay. I have a distinct memory of reading about a battle and the birds are there and they're like fighting. But there were no dragons. So well, child the, Gino was like, how dare they? In the third, so after this Del Toro Quest series, there's there's Del Toro Quest 2 Del Toro Shadowlands, where our characters go into the Shadowlands mm. to try and free it from the Shadow Lord's control because it didn't always belong to the Shadow Lord mm. because he's a conqueror. <gasps> and then Del Toro Quest 3 is called Dragons of Del Toro, which involves the latest sh- plot from the Shadow Lord to poison the land of Del Toro. And in order to stop it, they, our characters have to awaken what were long thought to be uh, extinct dragons. And there is, I think, a battle in that one where the dragons kill like four of the seven Akbaba. Maybe I just read that one. It's possible. (laughs) (laughs) I read them super out of order. I was just like, which one is the cool covers? This one got dragons. Yeah. So the kingdom is attacked and then Endon finally sends a message to Jared. Um, and he disguises it using that childhood drawing of either a bear or a mouse that we <laughs> talked about earlier. Um, and then Jared goes. He finds Endin. They reunite. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry that I abandoned you. Or like, I thought you were bad. Endin's married. Endin's also married. Also, also expecting. expecting a kid. <laughs> How convenient. Time yeah. moves fast. <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember I was reading and I was like, wait, I thought like... 15 years past like from the beginning of the story it kind of seems like they're like young kids but i guess they're like probably a little bit older probably like 16 yeah which if seven years pass that's oh i can't do math 23 23 i mean look i know i know it's not as common in our age but even still in my mind having a kid at 23 is wild but anyways it's probably fine (laughs) (laughs) but then Jared is like, okay, Endin, the only way we can fight off the Shadow Lord right now is if you go and get the Belt of Del Tora yes. right now and put it on. So they rush to the tower where it's kept, and it turns out it's been stolen. The only thing that's left is, like, the shell of the belt that's kind of, like, broken apart, and all the jewels are gone, so it's lost its power. Um, so then they come up with this plan. They're like, okay, we can't go looking for the gems right now. We have to wait until the Shadow Lord doesn't care about us anymore we have to make the shadow lord think that like the heirs are dead there are no heirs and also jared is not like dead also i guess (laughs) because jared's important so they come up with this plan and they're like okay we'll wait like x amount of years and then at that point either we'll go on the quest or i guess our kids will go on the quest and find then we flash forward 16 years later this is half the book yeah (laughs) yeah half the book is now over and jared has had a kid and the kid is now 16 his name is leaf which is great yeah great name like leaf i think it's spelled like leaf erickson yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. and leaf has a great intro also like i think this book does really well of introducing you to characters very quickly even though like like we said, the pacing is a little strange where there's a lot of setup in the beginning. I actually didn't mind it because I felt like I liked learning about the characters. So we learn about Leaf. We learn about what life is like under the Shadow Lord's rule. There's like a law that says you can't be outdoors after sunset, but Leaf sometimes cuts a little close. So we get to see his adventures and it's his birthday. So he gets the whole day to himself and he comes home and his parents sit him down. They're like, hello. Now that you're 16, let's tell you about this quest. <laughs> you get your first Pokemon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, it's no way. <laughs> and then he goes out on the quest that very night because they basically expected that he would, A, want to go on the quest, and B, he would want to leave right away. They give him a sword. Jared, who is, I, I was about to say he interned with the blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did. yeah. And then he became a blacksmith after the blacksmith died, his father-in-law. And he's basically reconstructed the belt so it's ready for the jewels when Leaf finds them. So Leaf goes, he takes, um, what's the companion's name? Barda. Barda. Barda is, he used to be a guard at the palace. And then he ran away when he started getting wind of 
bad things happening. And ever since then, he's been hot. He's been pretending to be like a beggar on the street, but he's actually secretly been watching over Leaf. <laughs> and Leaf has this moment of crisis where he's like, oh, I thought I was so cool every time I got away from those guards. But it turns out it was Barda <laughs> watching my back. Um, but I thought it was kind of fun because he's almost like a guardian angel type of figure. Um, but he's they, not happy about it. He's not happy about it. So they go out on the quest. They decide that their first stop should be the Forest of Silence, which initially was the place that Leaf was the most intimidated to go to. Uh, they go to the Forest of Silence. They meet some weird creatures. They get paralyzed by... The Wen. The Wen, yeah. Did you see at the end of the book, there's a little piece about the Wen and the yeah. Wen bar? Mm-hmm. I love it. There's There was a whole book in like my school library that was literally... like It's tacked onto the end of these books, but there was a whole book called like Monsters of Del Tora. <gasps> and big picture book. And I loved it because like the art for these books is wild. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying, the monsters here, like seeing them rendered into visual form, typically, like, if something's got a mouth, it's a big mouth. It's got a lot of teeth. (laughs) If something's got eyes, those are some interesting eyes. If it's a monster with eyes, they typically tend to be very beady. Or if they're large, they look like, I don't know, maybe exploding stars or something. Or just, like, (laughs) giant glassy jewels because these things are practically alien fantasy creatures. And they're very, very colorful. Very colorful. The colors are wild. It's like looking through a kaleidoscope. But at the other end, instead of fun shapes and colors, it's monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to make special mention of that. You don't necessarily get a whole lot of lore about some of the aspects of the world that are the more fantastical, but you do get it in these extra little sections tacked on at the end of the book. And the the when which are described in there as a race of cold-blooded creatures. And they're just like all arms and legs with these weird kind of thin hourglass torsos, just super pale. And they have these two little eye stalks at the top where like the shoulders are. They don't have heads, just eye stalks. And the eyes are a beet red. And they worship this thing called the Wenbar, which is just basically a giant dinosaur (laughs) with like a super long neck that it's normally collapsed in on itself in a bunch of fleshy folds. But it's like if you think of like a, you know, classic Nessie like plesiosaur, it's like that except it walks on like four legs. And it's got like one of those accordion necks where you can just stretch and stretch and stretch. Yeah. So sorry. I just I had I'm sorry, Victoria. I had oh, to jump no. in it's all good. because I remember as a kid being like so into the Wen bar. <laughs> I think from my impression, it's almost like a somewhat symbiotic relationship where the Wen bar will kill the prey and then the Wen bar gets first pick at the food and then afterwards the Wen come and they get get the scraps or whatever. It's just real it's just real cool because yeah. there's a certain level of like intelligence to the Wen in mm-hmm. a way you feel like but at the same time may, and maybe it's just because they have like vaguely anthropomorphic like anthropoid proportions with like arms and legs and all that mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. bipedal and so you make assumptions but yeah it's interesting so sorry anyway they go to the forests of silence yes and then they almost die because they're paralyzed by the wen and the wen bar but then this random girl shows up and saves them jasmine jasmine hmm, I, I wonder, wonder who she is <laughs> hmm <laughs> yeah that was gonna be my question i was like isn't she endin's daughter <laughs> Probably. What? Wait, is she? Is she not? There's so many wonderful things about this series, and I know we normally talk about spoilers, but if you want to read the rest of this... I really do. I don't want to. This is the one exception. I don't want to give any spoilers. Honestly, because it's such a fast read, I'm probably just going to blow through the whole series. Just do it. I give you... Go ahead. (laughs) It's not... It is what you expect, but also it's not what you expect. Ooh, okay. This book has such great, like, twists and turns. Okay. I'm excited because, like, initially I was like, obviously she's Endon's daughter, right? So maybe she's not. Okay, I will go in with no expectations. Great twists and turns. Great twists and turns. (laughs) Um, Anyways, she's great. She has, like, these two creatures that are, like, her companions. One is named Feely. The other one is... Something else. I it's like a bird and a squirrel, essentially. Yeah. Cree is the bird. Right, yes. And then Feely's the little, yeah, it's basically a squirrel. I don't think we ever get told. It's just a small little furred creature. Mm. Just a little guy. Yeah. Just a little guy. It's his birthday. 
And uh, Jasmine's parents were taken by the Shadow Lord's stormtroopers, basically, gray guards. And she helps Jared and Barda get the first... A leaf. Oh, leaf, sorry. No, it's okay. Victoria, how... Come on, you gotta keep track of all these I know, sorry. Suddenly, Jared is there. No. Um, She helps Leaf and Barda get the first gem, which is like a topaz, yeah. And they fight this guard who, like, at the end, it's basically revealed that his body has disintegrated inside the armor, so he's just like a walking suit of armor. But he was lured in by these flowers that supposedly give you, like, an eternal life if you drink the nectar. So I guess he, like, a long time ago, he went there with his two brothers in search of this nectar, but the flowers kind of lured him in and, like, corrupted him so that he killed his brothers so that only he could have the nectar. But at that point, the flowers had already wilted. So he's just been waiting for the flowers to bloom again. So he was pretty interesting. What's his name? Goral? Goral. 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 Gorals. Gorals. <laughs> but yeah, I thought this book was really interesting. I enjoyed that it was a fast read, but also that they don't add any unnecessary details. Everything that happens is very like character-driven. Every scene is dedicated to learning about the characters or progressing the story, um, which honestly I'm super down for. So in screenwriting class, they teach you like if the scene doesn't progress either like the character arc or the plot, it's unnecessary. Just omit it. So I almost kind of like that in this book. They just get right to the point. And I'm excited to learn what other perils await Leaf and Jasmine and Barda, who almost died. Michael described this well when we were first talking about making this show. The world sucks. <laughs> the world is bad. <laughs> it's not a great place to live for anyone. It's true. There's like all these things that reading back now I pay more attention to. Just interesting like, well-thought-of world elements that when I was a kid, I just sort of accept it, like, wow, this world's kind of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> everywhere you go, it's just a, a new eldritch horror of some kind. But in the book, they describe it as, like, there had always been evil and good in the land of Del Tora. It's just that with the influence and uh, reign of the Shadow Lord, evil has been allowed to almost totally eclipse uh, the good. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know, imagine your basic D&D world, except take any and all peaceful settlements and make them like existing on on the fringes and just barely scraping by and everywhere is just monsters. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of that, I suppose. I looked up a picture of Feely and now I'm scared. Oh no. Uh Oh. It's like a f- owl. The world's worst Furby. Wow. <laughs> That's true. It does kind of look like a Furby with like the big eyes. The eyes are much bigger than anything should be. Almost looks like it has a little owl beak. A little tail, no arms, no legs, just feet. What a little guy. <laughs> what, a, what? what does Cree look like? I think Cree's just a crow. Cree's like just a little magpie. Oh. Okay. Just like a normal bird. <laughs> Feely's just a little furred thing. Yeah. One of the things we know is that when the Akbaba from the Shadow Lord, which I love that name, when the Akbaba came to the city of Dell, each one took a gem and they flew in separate directions to all the different corners of the land of Del Tora and they put the gems in a very dangerous place where it would have a guardian, some mm-hmm. evil entity of some kind. Um, that's what Goral was. When Barda and Leaf first meet Jasmine and they're trying to figure out, okay, where's this topaz going to be in this expansive forest? There's like technically three different mm-hmm. forests that make up the Forest of Silence. And Bart is like, all right, well, this Wenbar thing is pretty freaking awful. It's got to be in its cave. And yeah. Jasmine's like, this is like a tiny corner of one of the forests. There's like a yeah. hundred other things that are more terrifying than this. She's like, I've seen worse. She's able to, like, streamline their journey straight to the heart of the centermost forest called the Dark, which is where Goral is. And even now, even now, both when I was a kid and now I'm reading this, like, I'm so fascinated to learn what else could be mm-hmm. in Even this more forest. terrifying than yeah. a Wenbar. Oh, my gosh. Because, like, getting paralyzed by these strange, pale, like, mouthless alien creatures and then, like, having to lie on the ground all day paralyzed until a giant creepy looking flesh neck folding dinosaur comes up and like eats you it's terrifying yeah it's not great (laughs) jeez and here's the thing i've read the other eight books i know there's much more terrifying stuff (laughs) emily rada can come up with than the wen bar so i'm like 
Emily Rada, whatever else you imagine exists in the forest of silence, I want to know. Because yeah. she is Australian. Where all the That's worst true. creatures of the earth dwell. Yeah. <laughs> the most terrifying things. That's true. It's interesting to me that Goral was seen by the forest in general as worse, more dangerous than the Wenbar. Because at the end of the day, Goral's just like a guy with a sword. Yeah. A very corrupted knight. Sure. But just a guy with a sword. There's this interesting implication where Jasmine... I love the the magic in this. Ja there's like a, things of soft magic where Jasmine like can she just kind of says I can talk to the trees. Like the trees tell me what dangers ahead. Mm -hmm. There's good trees and there's bad trees. And Leaf and Bardo are like okay. <laughs> um, Leaf asks his father, "How do we know that the air is even still alive?" And his father's like, "The belt is so connected to Eden's air and legacy that it would have like rusted. It would have completely." dissolved um if there was no air remaining and we just like accept stuff like this yeah and with goral there's this idea that in the dark he has been killing creatures people whatever that comes near him to feed these vines that have wrapped around all the trees in the area and suffocated and tortured the trees and the more people come Basically, it almost indicates like that this is a thing that keeps growing and the longer that goral is there and the more people and creatures that he kills the more these vines are going to grow yeah and there's just this interesting idea of if you leave the evil as it is here it's not just going to perpetuate it's just going to get worse mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so ending goral in addition to taking the topaz allows good to return from the forest and actively prevents it from being turned into like a whole new kind of nightmare mm -hmm. which i find very interesting yeah. yeah this is a complete side note but i was like looking back on some of the parts i highlighted as i was reading that i particularly wanted to talk about but kind of going off on how every character really like gets their moment to shine this one moment in particular I thought was so cool. It's the scene where Endin and Jared and Endin's wife, her name is Sharn, go up to the tower to get the belt. And there they like encounter Prandine, who's like, ha ha, like, you fool, like I've been manipulating you all along. <laughs> and then Sharn like basically like puts on this act of like, there's not someone coming up the wall to save us. Like she <laughs> pretends like there's someone she pretends but doesn't pretend that there's someone um, coming up the wall to save them. And then Prandine looks out the window and it literally says, In the next instant, Sharn had crouched behind him, thrown her arms around his knees, jerked his legs back and upwards and tipped him over the sill. And that's how he dies. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> literally, like she's pregnant. And she's like, nah. <laughs> like, <laughs> she just throws the guy out the window. Yeah. She's like, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I was like, Endin, you got a good one. I know you like didn't have a choice in who you married, but like, good job. <laughs> <laughs> this character is here on page for like a chapter. And she walks in, says, hello. I know none of you asked me to be here. Kills the main bad guy and leaves. Sharn's <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Great characters in this story. Very intriguing setup. Yeah. Not to circle back, but you guys got me thinking about Goral a little bit. His whole thing was that he wanted the nectar from these blossoms to gain immortality, right? And then he failed, so he decided to just sit there immortally <laughs> until <laughs> he could get the nectar again. So he got his wish, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was immortal. Yeah. Kind of in a horrible sort of I mean, anytime way. fantasy books talk about immortality, it's always like there's always kind of a lesson that's like, do you really want to be immortal? Is that really what you want? I was actually worried at the end when Leaf uses the nectar to Save bring Barda. Barda back to life. I was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> You're sentencing Barda! To I was like, do you just see what happened to this poor knight who, like, has been sitting around here and destroying things for, I don't know, centuries? as like a suit of armor, and then you're just going to give Barda the nectar. But it turns out it's like, oh, you have to drink a lot of the nectar. You can't just have a few sips, which is what Barda had. So I was like, okay. It would be wild, though, if that nine books later, Barda's still around. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, I feel like this has to come back somehow, where they think he's not immortal, but it turns out he actually is or something. I don't know. Well, Jasmine ends up collecting the, the last of the few drops. And then mm -hmm. I think... Leaf asks, like, 
right, do you want to drink that and become immortal? And, and Jasmine delivers, like, the, the classic fantasy moral of, like, <laughs> no, that's for idiots. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think she even says, like, it would take, like, all the nectar mm. from the lilies to, to make one immortal. I don't know, though. I can't remember. But it sounds like even just, like, a few drops could have some healing properties. So maybe in future books, I don't know, someone gets a really bad cut and they're like, okay, Drop some healing nectar on it. Ow, paper cut. Don't worry, I got this. <laughs> like, oh, this is going to take like a week to heal. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> if only. It's like that little vial of like magic water or something that the youngest sibling in the Chronicles of Narnia gets as their oh, present. Oh, yeah, Lucy. And everyone gets else gets healing cool, water. Everyone else gets a cool practical thing. And then she gets like healing water. And then she just like. Well, she does also get a dagger. I guess she also gets yeah. a dagger. Here, a deus ex machina. <laughs> don't use it. Don't, don't use it. Wait, you'll know. Like, All right. It's got this thing. Yeah. <laughs> I would love, here you go. It's life. Gulp. <laughs> Wait, no. <laughs> that Ooh, wasn't hand sanitizer. Oh. <laughs> anyway, what's next? Wow, my hands are really, like, really moisturized. They feel so young. <laughs> wow, my cuticles? Perfect. <laughs> I guess because I really want to read the next books, we can't spoil too much. But what lies ahead? I assume they find all the gems because based <laughs> on the fact that there are eight books in the first series. Uh, yes, they do find all the gems. There's a, When you have the physical books, there's something real fun about them. We're on the spine of the book. And sometimes kids' books do this. They do something interesting with mm-hmm. the cover of the spine. But on the spine of the book, there is a, a rendering of the belt. For the first book, there's just the topaz in it. Ooh. And it has one on the topaz for the next book they go to find the ruby and it has the topaz and the ruby nice. in the on the belt on the spine it has a little so when you put them it. all together you get the full belt yeah. yeah yeah it's cool as a kid there's nothing cooler than that i like it when the spines of books like all combine to make one single like picture oh yeah so if you like put them on your shelf in order um it makes a picture which yeah i think, I think fun. the percy jackson the new percy jackson books do that yeah I was a huge fan of, like, just the concept of this belt and these stones of power as a kid. The first Infinity Gauntlet. Um, <laughs> each, yeah. each stone represents, like, a different power or different oh, yeah. ability the or a different moral strength. faithfulness? I think so. Yes. Um, yeah. I think so. And I believe throughout the series, like, as the belts get stronger, the characters get stronger, and they start being able to use these abilities mm. to, like enhance themselves on the quest after the dragons that was what really drew me into these books i believe also the scholastic prizes quote unquote that they had when they had these big scholastic magazines you could buy like these box sets of the books they would sometimes come with a little belt wow like a little toy belt that's so fun Um, i remember really wanting one i don't remember if i ever (laughs) got one but like that was the coolest thing for me having a little belt that's cool that's awesome i would have loved that That's super cool. I also love, there's like things in this book that, gosh, Emily Rada's mind, like, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to pretend sitting here like I'm super well-read in like science fiction fantasy. I've read a number of books, but just as much as anyone else who's interested in the genre. But I haven't seen like, I I mean, we've seen magic belts before, but I haven't seen a a series in which the key item, the like most important thing of all is a magic belt with gems on it. That's just really cool. It's not something you normally think of, but they do it here in, like, the best way. Similarly, a detail I had totally forgotten, the Grey Guards, the basic stormtroopers, you're very used to in fantasy settings, the average, you know, goon or whatever of the the villain has, I don't know, a sword or something, maybe a whip. The Grey Guards, their main, like, primary weapon is a sling. Mm. And... They used using this sling. They have these little silver eggs called blisters that have a, a caustic poison inside that'll just like, oh yeah, kill like you instantly it kills you. you. Yeah, and that's just so interesting. One because you don't normally see that. Two because historically, I'm pretty sure slingers were like a big deal because it was like one of the most common denominators of like a, a martial individual you can you can make a sling with materials that are going to be readily available to you pretty much wherever you are mm-hmm. and all you need is a decent rock and a lot of practice and you can fairly reliably you know whirl up a rock to high speed and sling it at an enemy from a distance and as they say like in war range is king so yeah. that had an interesting context there and on top of that on top of that it weirdly kind of made sense to my brain that like 
maybe the Shadow Lord and all his like weird conquering mayhem has kind of found ways to sort of streamline his like I don't know strange imperial process where is he going to outfit all his guards with swords maybe maybe not maybe in certain places he just says here's a pouch and a bunch of cheaply made poison balls <laughs> this will do your job for you cuz you're just you're just looking after peasants and stuff mm-hmm. it's just interesting these little little ideas uh implications even just the threat of getting slinged with a little poison ball. Yeah. Like, that's enough. It's because even if it's like if they chase after you with a sword and they like slice your arm a little bit, you, you're you fine. You can continue on. You could still run away. But this is like, no, like one hit and you're done. <laughs> I forget if in future books, like they're proven to be like not necessarily immediately lethal, but it is like. It occupies a different space in your brain. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're, as readers, we're very used to, you know, like the threat of swords, of daggers, of yeah. melee weapons. It's very different when you think about someone hucking a poison ball <laughs> at you. I just like slings as a concept. Slings and spears were like the great equalizer on the battlefield until guns. <laughs> <laughs> but like you could very easily rally up a huge army of peasants with slings and spears and minimal training. And they could do fine. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's it's better than nothing. It's certainly better than nothing. Because swords are, like, heavy, and you got to have, like, the right technique. They're, they can be very expensive. Yeah. It's so much training. Simple status. Sling, you could just make one, get some rocks, chuck yeah. them at people. Chuck them. <laughs> and you, you, it's hard to run out of ammo. You just look down, and you're like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's dropping rocks everywhere. So you just pick <laughs> new ones up. It's it's the uh, it's the the nerf rule, the nerf gun rule. <laughs> oh no, I'm out of ammo. Let me just root around the carpet yeah. here. Okay, I got more darts. <laughs> yeah. Del Toro Quest was so successful, particularly in Japan, that oh yeah, that it was turned into both a manga adaptation and an anime adaptation. And it's like, I don't know, 52 episodes, English dubbed and everything, if you want. Um, It's fairly popular. And I think there's eight episodes after that original story that are not part of the book material, that are solely part of the Japanese dub, but just have a few extra adventures and show like a little bit more of like an epilogue kind of thing. It's, as far as I remember, pretty faithful adaptation to the books. I remember just being like a teenager well after having finished the Del Toro Quest books, looking on the old like TV channels, and I just see a half hour block of Del Toro Quest, and I'm like, what? Like, what? <laughs> no and, way! And it's got a pretty banger opening here, Ooh. which is just fantastic. Ooh, early CG. Is that Barda? You sound so disappointed. No, I'm just wondering. <laughs> I think it is. Ooh, it suddenly got like very hyper-realistic. A lot, of, a lot of early 3D animation there. Yeah, a lot of early 3D animation there. Now I have to read the books and watch the anime. So much to do. Oh, man. How will you ever get it all done? I know. How will you get it all done? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I, like, tried not to look too much into it because I didn't want to spoil myself. But I did see, like, just, um, like, a screenshot of, I guess, a scene. For some reason, I imagine the Grey Guards looked like wizards, where they, like, wear cloaks and stuff. I think it's just kind of like uh, tunics and... But anyway, I guess it made... uh... Uh, big gangbusters in Japan. And so we have an anime, which as a teenage anime lover was like the most wild collision of worlds for me. I think the best part of it was like you didn't know that it existed. Like you read the books and you kind of like forgot about it, but you had fond memories of it. And then one day suddenly it was presented to you as a gift. Yeah. It was like, look, an adaptation exists. (laughs) Like an animated series. Did you ever have like books like that that you read where you're like, I wish this was like a movie or like a a TV series? Redwall was that way Mm. for me, where I read the Redwall books in school, and then one day they just showed up as a fully animated series at my library. And I was like, oh, oh, I can watch it now. (laughs) I know there is one, but for some reason I'm blanking on it. There's definitely, uh, it's like on the, like, I know it's there, but I can't remember what it was. But definitely it's very, it's a very pleasant surprise when you're like, oh, I love that book. And then 
It's like it exists. <laughs> Unless it's a bad ad- adaptation, then you're just kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, in this it case, was really good. Yeah. It was. I mean, it was everything I ne- sort of anticipated it to be. I suppose, in a way, when Leaf I watched. Leaf is pieces. very much, very much looks like an anime protagonist. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw just one screenshot of him probably talking to his mom, and his mom also was like very anime mom, <laughs> <laughs> like just like brown hair with the ponytail, and I was like, ah, yes, <laughs> it's the anime mom. <laughs> It's interesting. When I was watching a little featurette on Emily Rada, I guess uh, they partially covered the fact that it was um, adapted into an anime series. And from what little blurb you get in this little featurette, um, I guess she said, yeah, we were pretty much fine with everything except for Barda's beard. We kind of went back and forth on it because it was supposed to be big, but I guess it's hard to do that, to have like a Mm. reliable big beard on one of your like main characters who's always there. So that's why I think Barda's beard looks kind of like no beard I think I've ever seen on like uh, an anime <laughs> character with its strange kind of well-trimmedness but also it has kind of points to give the idea yeah, that it's... Yeah, they're like, we'll make it as long as possible mm-hmm. as we're okay with drawing. Yeah. I do think the the addition of a, like a really big bushy beard for Barda that gives him a very distinct silhouette. I think that's really cool in my head. Yeah. I don't know, in my head I just imagine like just like some grumpy guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't imagine him with a beard for some reason. I was just like, he's just some dude. Well, it's weird. Like, when I was a kid, I was thinking, you know, I was closer to Leaf's age. Um, and now I'm thinking to myself, wait, how old is Barda? How Am I closer to oh, Barda wait, now yeah. than I am? Because Leaf is 16. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like 12 years I out, think Barda is like Jared's age. Because didn't they grow up in the palace around the same time? Barda was older, I think. Okay, so he's slightly older than Jared. Barda is in his early 30s during Del Toro Quest 1. Well, I'm getting there. You're you're almost one Barda. I'm almost one whole Barda. Honestly, not a bad gig. Yeah. Barda's pretty great. I know this book involves sort of like Barda being like, you know, I got to admit, I wanted to do this thing alone because I didn't want to tag a kid along, which, mm-hmm. I mean, Understand- understandable. <laughs> uh, but he comes around by the end of the story. And for the rest of the books, he's he's just, he's Barda. He's great. So I got no qualms. I got no qualms about turning into Barda. <laughs> I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll be as awesome as that, but. All right, Michael, in a couple of years, you're going to be going on some quests with some 16-year-old kid. <laughs> Hope you're ready. <laughs> to save the world. Yep. Got to find a belt. Mm-hmm. Thank you in advance for saving the world. Yeah. <laughs> really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I'm not looking forward to getting stabbed in the chest by a suit of armor. That's true. <laughs> Bounded okay. by will. Because then you'll get some magic little nectar drops and you'll be fine. And yeah. also maybe mortal, but probably just fine. Probably just <laughs> fine. All right. Well... I think it's about time for yeah. Victoria to call our boss and tell him the plot of Del Toro <laughs> Quest Book One, The Forests of Silence. Yes, we'll see if our boss, Casey Wayland, has ever heard of this book before. Maybe he'll also find it nostalgic. We'll see. But until then, we'll catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> I had walked away to go check the levels, but now I'm back to say goodbye. Thanks Bye. for listening. <laughs> Bye. Oh, wait. Do we want to come up with a funny uh, sign-off? Um, and as they say in Del Tora, uh, hope you're alive tomorrow. <laughs> you know what's interesting? This book also features apples, just like Sideways Stories from Wayside School. That's true. Leaf and his friends find apples at the beginning. Oh, yeah, and they're like, hey, we stole these from the Shadow Lord because we're technically supposed to give all fruits to the Shadow Lord. And they <laughs> go, I like imagine they go under a bridge and they're like, <laughs> like little mice just being like. <laughs> I like imagining the Shadow Lord as a dude who like, there's all this oppression and they like have all these carts filled with luxury and fruits and all that. And they wheel it up and there's this whole sequence. And it finally gets to like this just kind of nice like penthouse suite somewhere and it's the shadow lord's just a horrible looking uh, awful dude but then he like finishes his job for the day takes off his ominous looking cloaks and crown and just puts on a robe and <laughs> takes like the fruits and just kind of like very mundane blends them up in a blender just kind of carefully like spoons a little like pineapple juice in and then he's just like sitting on a couch sipping on a smoothie like <laughs> yeah like oh, how is he eating gosh. all this fruit I don't know. I'm trying to think of how they end up describing the Shadow Lord. He's always just very nebulous. Mm. He's he's big and evil. He's evil. He's a shadow. In the anime, 
I'm fine with talking about this as spoilers because I don't think this happens at the end of the book series, but it's anime, so you know they have to do it. Um, the power of the belt of Del Tora manifests like the soul of the first King Adin in like a giant humanoid, like if anyone knows Naruto, like a Susanoo kind <laughs> of like giant light rendition yeah, of yeah, the yeah. king and then the shadow lord in the show is rendered as this ominous red cloud which kind of bears similarities to what we see in this first book but he's also kind of like a physical-ish entity and <laughs> the giant spirit of Adin has like a giant kaiju battle with the shadow lord of course yeah <laughs> and at one point like lifts up the this weird cloud mass of the shadow lord and like hurls him across the the forest and the shadow lord's got plenty of voice acting going on so he's like ah <laughs> <laughs> no, I know this power. <laughs> it's great. Amazing. That's awesome. Well, catch us on the next episode. And until then, hopefully you find all seven gems for the belt of Del Tora. You better. Yeah. Or we're all doomed. Yeah. To suffer and die at the hands of the Shadow Lord. Until then, don't kill your siblings for some lilies. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth it. Thank you for listening to Nostalgia Club. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at underscore Nostalgia Club and on Instagram at Nostalgia Club Podcast. Leave a comment, give us a rating, and subscribe. You can also send us an email with your suggestions for what we should review next at nostalgiaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Hello? Hi, Casey. Hey, what's up? So we're back to your regularly scheduled children's book update. Have you ever heard of Del Tora Quest? Del Tora Quest? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you all about it, and then you can see if you want to read it. Okay. Are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Del Tora Quest is about the kingdom of Del Tora, and at the beginning of the first book, you meet Jared, who is the best friend of the Prince Endin, who later becomes the king. And in this kingdom, when you become the king, you receive uh, this belt of Del Toro, which is this um, silver belt with seven gems that um, whose po magical power can uh, uh, I'm thinking, uh, can hold off the forces of the evil Shadow Lord. But um, over the course of the book, the Shadow Lord steals the gems and hides them away and then takes over the kingdom. And so then Jared and Endin come up with this plan where they're going to send their kids on a quest to find the seven gems. And so then uh, we meet the newest protagonist, who is Jared's son, Leaf, and he goes on this quest. In the first book, he manages to find the first... Um, gem uh the topaz and then he sets off on his journey to save the kingdom from the shadow lord and that's all i have time for wow yeah that is a, that's a thick one there yeah and that was only one book oh my gosh and there's eight of them Oof. and actually there's eight books and then like four other series endless stories to be told about um the land of del Tora. I thought this was a potential job. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, they want to do some audio with us? What? <laughs> that would be kind of cool, you know? If anyone out there wants to pitch us their idea or give us some money to produce a Del Tora um, audio drama, uh, let us know. Contact us at Wayland Productions. Please do. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Fantasy <laughs> is fun. Yeah, definitely. You can do some fun um, warrior fights and stuff. I think they're dragons at some point. They're fun creatures we could design, you know, all good things. It <laughs> does like, sound like fun. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll let you get back to your writing. Okay. You take care. Bye. Bye. Yay. <laughs>